Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts, In Conversation. Hello and welcome to the June episode of the EVJ In Conversation podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have Heather Cameron Whittock discussing horse falls in eventing and Sani Hansen telling us about a new equine asthma biomarker. Heather Cameron Whittock is a senior lecturer in animal and veterinary sciences at the University of Central Lancashire. She'll be talking us through her paper titled Towards a Safer Sport, Risk Factors for Cross-Country Horse Falls at British Eventing Competition. Heather, thank you very much for joining us today to talk about your recent paper in EVJ. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the world of eventing, could you start by giving us a brief overview of the sport? Yeah, um, well, thank you very much for having me. So eventing as a sport, it's a little bit, sometimes people describe it as like the equestrian triathlon. Um, It's got three phases. Luckily, none of those include swimming, um, but it's got these three distinct phases that the horse and rider complete as a combination. So the first phase is the dressage where they have to follow a series of movements and demonstrate control and balance and harmony in their partnership. Um, Typically, the second phase is the show jumping, which is where they jump the course of coloured poles. If any of um, these fences are touched even lightly, the pole will fall to the floor and that incurs penalties. And then the final phase typically is across country, which is where they're galloping across country, so out in fields, and they jump sort of natural style obstacles. So that might include ditches, logs, jumping in and out of water and things like that. The ultimate aim of eventing is to get to the end of the three phases with the least amount of penalties. So you're incurred with penalties for any errors. um, And yeah, the the person with the lowest penalty score at the end is the winner. That's a really nice summary of it. Thank you. Um, So your paper was looking at risk factors for the cross-country phase for horse falls during cross-country at British eventing competitions. Um, So when we discuss falls, we describe them as rotational or non-rotational. Could you tell us what determines both of these? Yep. So rotational is essentially where the horse will somersault over the fence. So it does look as dramatic as it sounds and it does typically involve um, the horse sort of doing a front flip over the fence. And those are the most dangerous type of fall, obviously, because there's a lot of force involved in that kind of fall. And that can also end up with the horse landing on top of the rider. A non-rotational fall is where the horse sort of... um, falls to the ground more in the style that his belly might touch the ground so we say it's when the shoulder and the quarters of the horse touch either the ground or the fence and the ground simultaneously so if they were to slip down and land on their belly that's a non-rotational but if they were to do a somersault over it that is a rotational your paper gave the um, fall and injury statistics the fei reported during the 2021 season would you mind um, just going over these Yep. So during the 2021 season, um, there's 1.12% of starters had a horse fall. 186 of those were non-rotational and 29 were rotational. So you can see that the non-rotational falls are the more common. And of those falls, 
So of non-rotational falls, 7.53% of those riders were seriously injured. And for rotational falls, 24.14% of riders were seriously injured. So that just demonstrates the more serious nature of the rotational falls. Uh, you might notice that I'm talking about the rider. And the reason for that is that the FEI don't currently publish statistics um, injury data of the horse. So we don't have that to hand. Right. Okay. So a recent study also investigated and reported risk factors for horse falls at FEI competitions. And what did they find? Yep. So I think you're uh, referring to a study done by myself and my colleagues, Ewan and Tim. Um, so we had two studies on FEI competitions. One was about the fences and we called that fence level factors. Um, and in that one, we found particular fences to have higher risk. So, for example, corner fences and brush fences with a ditch in front, fences that are associated um, downhill or landing into water, um, and also higher event levels. So, the more difficult higher event levels were associated with increased risk in comparison to the lower levels. Um, and then in the horse rider um, paper on the FEI uh, data, we found um, male riders had a higher risk, horses who previously had a horse fall, riders who had not completed their previous start, and riders with higher dressage penalties were also associated with increased risk of a horse fall. Great. So what was the aim of this study? So the study that we conducted um, that we're talking about today was to look at, um, at to identify risk factors for horse falls um, in question eventing. Now, we were looking at national level data in this particular paper. And the reason that that's important is that national level data encompasses a much larger data set. Um, international level is, is obviously sort of the higher levels. Um, so there's less of them in the world, but national level there's a lot more people competing at those lower levels. So it encompasses a larger data set, which is really important for this type of study. Um, and we also wanted to focus on events that run over one day and are typically run in the format where it goes dressage first, show jumping second, and cross country last. At quite a few international level events, you'll have the cross country and the show jumping will swap order. So the cross country will be the middle of second phase and the show jumping will be last. So we wanted to sort of, um, you know, look at a slightly different cohort in this study. Could you give us an overview of the study and describe the cohort you used? Yes. Yeah, so at the time of obtaining the data, which, which was back in 2016, um, we wanted the most recent years of competition. So that was at the time, that was 2015 would have been the most recent year. And we took British Eventing's advice because it was their database that they felt the data gathering process was a lot more thorough and precise from 2005 onwards. So that was why we picked 2005 to 2015, which gave us 11 years of data. Um, some other important things is that in 2005 is generally the year that's considered where the longer format of eventing was phased out. And that was quite different. It included two additional phases of roads and tracks and steeplechase. Um, so we obviously had quite a big change in the format of the sport. Um, so 2005 actually worked out quite nicely to give us this sort of modern um, format of eventing to be able to look at that particularly. 
Um, we included all cross-country starts during this period. So that's any combination, horse riding combination that started the cross-country phase were included in our analysis. Um, and we compared starts that resulted in a horse fall. So those were cases with starts that did not result in a horse fall, so controls. And what differences were there between the levels of competition that you looked at? So the study encompasses competition levels from B90, which is national level, up to advanced level uh, competition. And we also do have an international category in there, which includes any CIC 1, 2, um, 3 or 4 star competition, which was run over one day of competition. So if they fit our criteria, we kept them in. Um, But they all sort of got lumped together as international because they are run under slightly different rules. Um, So B90, which is the lowest level of eventing that we kept in our data set, we didn't include B80, which is the level that exists. Um, It's considered a sort of training level. Um, And we didn't include it in our study cohort because it came in, I think, in 2009. And we wanted something, we wanted a data set that represented the entire um, study period. So B90, which is the lowest level we included, has a maximum fence height of 90 centimetres, which is where the name come from comes from. Um, and then this increases as the levels progress. So for example, advanced level, which is the top national level, has a maximum fence height of 1 metre 25. Um, it's not only that the height of the fence has changed with the levels, the required speed and distance of the cross-country course and the technicality width and number of fences also increases as the levels ascend. So we can talk through your results as you've um, published them in the paper. So you looked at risk factors at event level, rider level and horse level and combination level. So firstly, you looked at risk factors at event level, um, examining those, as you said, between B90 and international. Um What were the general differences between levels of competition in this range? And was the level associated with greater or lesser odds of a fall? Yeah, so we found that higher levels of national competition were all associated with increased risk of a horse fall compared to the lowest level, which was B90. Um, Advanced level competition carried the greatest risk of all. That was Um, If we looked at the effect sizes there, that had the biggest effect size. And yeah, the key differences in these levels is that, you know, advanced level competition compared to B90 is going to have a higher number of jumping efforts on course. The cross-country course is going to be over a longer distance. Um, The horses and riders have to complete it faster, so they have to have a um, faster speed of travel. And obviously the differences in the fence characteristics like height and width and technicality. And I thought it was really interesting that um, there were more falls at advanced level compared to the more elite international levels of eventing. Why do you think this disparity came about? Yeah, so this was... um, and somewhat probably due to the way that we categorized the data. Um, so as we only wanted one day international level competitions, that sort of reduced the amount of international um, level competitions we had in the cohort. And additionally, when you're looking at a national database like British Eventing, they only typically have the eventing results of 
national level events that happen in Britain. So there's obviously less of them due to that as well. And so because we had so few of those, we just sort of lumped one, two, three and four star together. And what that means is that essentially encompasses levels that are equivalent to novice, intermediate and advanced. Um, So like one star has a typical typically similar fence height and width to a novice level national competition. So that's why you see um, in our study that the international level has a slightly lower effect size than, for example, advanced. And it is we think it's because it encompasses lower levels as well as higher levels. Right. Okay. So when looking at rider factors, um, you investigated sex, age, number of starts and previous falls. Did you find that any of these influenced the chance of the rider falling? Yes. So we found that male riders were more likely to have a horse fall than female riders. Um, And we also found that older riders were more Um, were less likely to fall, sorry, than younger riders. So that was particularly riders over the age of 42 in comparison to riders between 12 and 21 years old. In terms of rider starts, um, this one is complex to interpret. It looks like riders with more starts, so between 11 and 23 starts and 36 and 115 starts in the study period are more likely to fall. But then those that had 116 or more starts were less likely to fall. So it's, you know, it's not linear, which makes it difficult to sort of unpack. Um, in addition, the rider starts, none of these were actually statistically significant. But the reason that the factor remains in the final mos- model is because it improved the model fit. Um, so more work is needed on that one in particular to enable clearer interpretation to be made. It's really interesting that you found that men had a higher chance of falling. Why do you think this is? Well, ultimately, we don't know, but we can speculate a number of reasons why that might be. Um, So we've considered that it could be differences in weight across different rider sex. There's been previous work that demonstrated that more weight on the horse caused the horse to take off closer to the fence. So it affects the jumping kinematics in the horse, which we could extrapolate to mean that horses might be more likely to hit the fence if they're taking off closer to it and then possibly incur a fall. But importantly, that work looked at dead weight rather than specific rider weight, which is quite different. You know, we know that dead weight is carried differently than human weight, but it's just one possible thing that would be interesting to look into further in future. Alternatively, it could be sex differences in psychology. So there's quite a lot of previous work that offers evidence that men are typically higher in a trait called self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is your belief in your ability to carry out a specific task successfully. So if we sort of try and think of a specific example of that in eventing, they might be turning into a fence and a male rider might be more likely to think they could come on a tighter line because they have confidence in their ability to get the horse over it safely. Um, And that can then sometimes lead to more risky incidents. And this has been identified in other dangerous sports such as rock climbing. So it is, you know, fairly well understood. That's that's really interesting. Um, Equestrian events are a rare example of a sport where a wide variety of ages compete to the highest levels. So why do you think increased age led to a decreased number of falls? It could indicate that experience is a big factor for safety in cross-country riding. 
Now, of course, the riders need a certain level of athleticism in this sport, but more of that truly is down to the horse. And you could argue that the the horse riding is perhaps more of a refined skill than an you know, epic athletic feat. Um, so experience would support that skill development that we're talking about. If this is a refined skill, then additional years of experience would make you better at it. Additionally, risk-taking has been reported to decline with age in people. Um, and this has been found in sports such as snowboarding, parkour, skateboarding and eventing. So it perhaps demonstrates that older riders are just more cautious and more aware of safety, and that might be what makes them less associated with horse falls. Okay, so moving on to the horse level, horses were assessed in your paper for the grade they performed at, along with other factors such as the, as the number of starts, height, sex and age. How did you find these affected the chance of a fall? So we'll start with um, grade. So graded horses, grade one horses were associated with decreased risk of a fall compared to grade two horses and grade four horses were associated with increased risk of a fall compared to grade two horses. Again, it's a factor that's not linear and that sometimes makes it difficult to unpack. But if we look at the horse grades, which are one, two, three and four, Grade four is a horse that has zero points, so we could argue that is the least experienced horse. Grade one is known as elite, and they have to have 500 or more grading points to get that status. So grade four horses being associated with increased risk, um, it would be reasonable to assume that that is because those horses are going to be competing at the higher levels, and we know that the higher levels are associated with increased risk. Um, with starts in recent months, horses that had started one, two and three times in the previous 30 days running up to their current start were all associated with increased risk of a horse fall. And then horses that had started one, two and three times in the previous 60 to 90 days, so a kind of longer period away, were also associated with increased risk of a horse fall. Those two factors are in comparison with um, no starts in that time. As I mentioned before, this one is challenging to unpack, so it crosses over similar to what we talked about in riders. It could be that horses need more rest between competitions. In FEI endurance competitions, for example, they've introduced mandatory rest periods, and that's been a result of published work like this. And so it could be that something like this could be introduced for eventing, but really further work would need to be done to enable us to make firm recommendations on that. You mentioned that horses with more starts in recent months were more likely to have a fall. So what explains this? It could be that those horses um, are susceptible to overtraining um, or overwork and they need sort of further rest between competing, um, which we have seen in some other studies the opposite in riders where if they're well practiced in recent months, they are protected, they're less likely to be associated with falls. Um, so yeah, I think it's something to consider in the fact that the horse is the athlete, what we're asking of them, and perhaps what we need to be doing in between competition days in terms of rest. And why do you think ponies and mares are also more likely to fall? 
So with ponies, it could be a simple case of the ratio between the pony height and the fence height, or it might be reasonable to assume that ponies are more often ridden by younger and therefore linked to what we talked about before, perhaps less experienced riders. With mares, this has also been identified in the FEI studies that we've done that mares carry a higher risk. There's also research that shows that stallions and geldings perform better than mares at all levels of eventing. Now, I would be personally reluctant to put that down to the mares themselves. I think there has been some work on the anthropomorphic application of gender stereotypes to horses. So it'd be really interesting to see how this affects how we interact and perhaps ride mares differently than their male counterparts. So when looking at the horse and rider as a combination, what increased the risk to the pair? So with looking at the combination, one of the sort of key factors that we identified was if the combination had um, incurred a higher number of dressage penalties in the dressage phase, then they were more likely to fall um, in the cross-country phase. So what that's saying is um, that those combinations that perform poorly in that phase are, you know, there's a sort of a linear association with risk of falling. Um, One of the things we actually did was we suggested in our work that the governing body implements a penalty cap. And what this would do would mean that if you um, went into a dressage test with your horse and you got a penalty score of 70 or more, you would be prevented from going on in the competition to complete the cross country. So you wouldn't be allowed to start the cross country. Now, getting a score of 70 dressage penalties really is the extreme end of the spectrum. And many people in eventing would be able to say that they don't really know anyone getting a score of that high. So it is a very small proportion of um, the cohort, but it does happen. And those individuals are four times greater at risk of a horse fall than anyone with a score of less than 70. Now, if we think about the sort of the fact that this is the extreme end of a dressage penalty score, we have to consider what's going on in the dressage test to warrant such a high score. Um, And we speculate that that could include aversive behaviour from the horse. And we know from other research that aversive behaviour is linked to pain in horses. And it could also be associated with um, lack of Um, ability. So it could be that the horse and rider maybe don't have great control and that could be a safety issue for cross country. It could also just be as simple as um, meaning that that horse and rider perhaps ended up at the wrong level of competition or they're just having a bad day. Um, But we do think that a a score as high and as sort of extreme as that does warrant some monitoring. Okay, so you could be looking at the end of a spectrum there. Yeah, there's lots of intertwining factors, isn't there? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what changes could be implicated in light of this research to improve the health and safety of riders and horses um, in eventing? So the the biggest sort of factor, if we just looked at effect size, which we know is, you know, how important is that factor within the model? Um, The level of competition really does by far and away have the biggest effect sizes in our model. Um, 
But we know from this discussion that we've had that level of eventing encompasses so many different factors that change as the levels increase. So it's very difficult for us to say outright what needs to be changed there. Um, but what we do suggest is that continuous monitoring of the minimum eligibility requirements needs to happen, which Again, we, we actually are aware that the governing bodies do this because it is something that continually changes in the rules. These MERs, as they're known, are a sort of criteria that the horse and rider need to meet before they're allowed to move up to the next level. So especially at those higher levels that have the biggest risk, like advanced level, um, for example, um, we need to be looking at the MERs and ensuring that they are the ones we've got in place are correct and that people aren't moving up when they're not ready. Another suggestion um, would be just monitoring horse workload. As I said, it's difficult to make any firm recommendations with that one because really more work needs to be done to sort of refine that finding. Um, but just being aware of it and monitoring it as a rider um, and, you know, being... Um, mindful of that in your horse. The other thing that um, I actually forgot to mention before was the fact that we found um, that riders who had a fall in their last start were carried increased risk for their current start. So if a rider had a horse fall in their previous run, their previous start, they were more likely to have another horse fall at their current start. So we've suggested monitoring that and it might be um, useful to consider implementing some kind of mandatory, either like timeout period, like a suspension, um, or it might be that they have to drop down a level. <clears throat> but that's something we suggest looking into, like what is happening with that combination after the fall happens? Are they just coming out a couple of weeks later and running at the same level or are they dropping down, making a safer decision? You may already have given us your take-home message in that summary, um, but do you have a single take-home message for us? I think the take-home message for us is that we just need to keep doing what we can to reduce these incidents. Um, you know, the social license to operate is a big term that's discussed in the industry at the moment, especially in equestrian sport. And there are lots of loud voices. And I think actually as a sport, we need to start listening to some of these loud voices that might not be part of our sport, but we need to listen to their criticisms. Um, because I even know personally that sometimes when you're involved in something so much, you can become blind to the problems and the issues. Um, and I think sort of stepping back and listening to outsiders can be really positive and can help create change. Um, so, yeah, that's my sort of take home is just that we should always keep trying to do our best to reduce these incidents. And if nothing else, it's for the good of the welfare of the animal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for this really interesting study trying to improve the sports, um, especially for our horses. We appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Sani Hansen is Associate Professor of Equine Internal Medicine at the University of Copenhagen. And Sani will be discussing her paper titled Neutrophil Gelatinase Associated Lipocalin as a Potential Biomarker for Equine Asthma. Hi Sani, thank you so much for joining us today on the EVJ podcast. So can I start by asking you what Neutrophil Gelatinase Associated Lipocalin is? and how it's been used as a biomarker in human medicine. 
Hi, and thank you for, for the invitation. Yes, you can. Uh, neutrophil gelatinase associated lipokaline or abbreviated NGAL is a, is a small protein uh, produced uh, by the neutrophils and also by different epithelial cells, including the tubular cells in the kidney. So it comes in a, a different forms. Uh, so you can, uh, there's a monomere and a heterodimia produced by the, the tubular cells and then a monodimia produced by the, by the neutrophils. Uh, so in, in human medicine, it has been uh, validated as a biomarker for acute kidney disease, uh, where NGAL released, uh, are released by the tubular cells uh, also within a few hours after a, an insult. And it is released into both to the blood and to the urine and is by that a really early and sensitive biomarker. Also, NGAL has been uh, released uh, or will be released from inflammation, so from the neutrophils during an inflammation. And, uh, and also there's research going on both for neoplasia and cardiovascular diseases in humans. So in the future, NGAL will be a really promising biomarker, especially if we are able to uh, distinguish between the different forms of the NGAL. Mm. So what research, research has already been conducted um, into NGAL in horses? There has been actually quite a few studies. So there has been done a validation study of uh, the ELISA, the bioporto ELISA, uh, that is also used in this study. Uh, there's been uh, some studies uh, measuring NGAL and in in horses with kidney disease and also in horses with dehydration, leaving conflicting results uh, regarding uh, be the, the value of a biomarker in acute kidney disease and the correlation to creatinine, but most of them with a good correlation to creatinine. It has also been looked at in, in both experimental and clinical cases of septic arthritis. And uh, NGAL uh, has been measured in both the serum and the synovial fluid of these horses. Uh, this study found that the NGAL uh, will peak 16 to 36 hours after an endotoxic insult. NGAL has also been measured in the peritoneal fluid of both healthy horses and horses with acute abdominal diseases. And in uh, a really recent study, uh, also published in the equine uh, veterinary journal, they found that uh, NGAL was able to distinguish between these non-strangulating infection caused by strongholds with garries and uh, idiopathic peritonitis. And also a really recent study uh, looked at NGAL concentration in foals and found that the NGAL concentration was higher in foals with sepsis uh, than non-septic foals and also that it was significantly lower in surviving foals than in non-surviving. So a biomarker with several uses. Definitely. <laughs> Um, equine asthma has been characterized into different severities and different types of equine asthma. Could you tell us what these are and what distinguishes them? Yeah, equine asthma is an umbrella term, including the mild to moderate equine asthma form and the severe equine asthma form. And previously, these were called 
inflammatory airway disease and recurrent airway obstruction. Um, the milder form, uh, so the, the mild equine asthma form uh, is mostly uh, present in the, in the racehorse uh, with clinical signs really subtle uh, and uh, with only suboptimal performance. Then the, the moderate form, uh, the form that are the normal or as we as clinicians see the most. So it is uh, with no obvious signs at, at rest, but poor performance and occasionally coughing during exercise. And the severe asthmatic form is the horse that has abdominal breathing at rest, severe coughing and exercise intolerance. So, and then of, of course we have the mild, moderate equine asthma subtypes uh, that is really difficult to distinguish upon the clinical presentation. Okay, so what were the aims and hypotheses of your study? So the aim of the current study was to investigate if the NGAL uh, measured in the BAL fluid and in the serum could differentiate between control horses and horses with mild to moderate equine asthma and again horses with severe equine asthma. And we used the BAL uh, cytology as the reference values. So the bronchoalveolar, sorry, the BAL. And uh, we had some hypotheses. So the first one was, of course, that at that NGAL will be able, uh, that we will be able to detect NGAL in the, in the BAL fluid. And, uh, and then the, the next hypothesis were that we were able to, uh, to differentiate the, between a healthy control horses and a mild moderate equine asthma horse and a severe equine asthma horse based on concentration of NGAL in either the, the BAL or the serum. And then the last hypothesis were that we were able, if we were able to detect differences in the mild moderate equine asthma subtypes. Okay, so could you describe your study population, how they were examined and how they were classified? Yeah, we used a, a retrospective cross-sectional study design. So, and our study population uh, were included based on clinical examination, endoscopic examination, and bronchoalveolar lavas uh, cytology results. So, and we used the, the less restrictive BAL reference values. So, that was published here in the 2016 consensus statement. And uh, we used, uh, so that was the reference values for the mild to moderate equine asthma uh, being above 10% neutrophils and 5% mast cells or eosinophils, and for the severe equine asthma above 25% neutrophils. For the control group, we, had, uh, we included horses with no clinical signs and no history of equine asthma or poor performance or coughing. Specific for this group, we were not able to include them for the restrictive BAL values. So we, so the BAL cytology values uh, were below uh, 10% neutrophils, 5% mast cells, or 5% eosinophils. And how did you carry out the NGAL assays? So the NGAL assay is a, a commer commercially available ELISA, uh, and it has a detection level of 4 picogram per milliliter. So, and it has been previously validated in, in horses uh, for, for this uh, 
and it was the same uh, used in the study. Is a whole, is a stable side version available? No, unfortunately not yet. But they, I know that the company, the BioPorto company, is uh, thinking of of uh, uh, producing one. Okay. So, how many horses did you end up recruiting and including in the study, and how much had, how many had each type of equine asthma? So we ended up including 227 uh, horses with uh, 73 horses being healthy, 98 having mild to moderate equine asthma, and 56 having severe equine asthma. And then we further divided the mild-moderate equine asthma group into neutrophilic uh, mild-moderate equine asthma with 36 horses included, and we had 47 horses with the mastocytic mild-moderate equine asthma horses. And then we had the rest 15 horses were mixed uh, mild-moderate equine asthma group. For the serum samples, we only had uh, access to a small sample size of 66 horses, and the serum samples were divided into 26, uh, 27 sorry, uh, serum samples for control horses, 11 for neutrophilic mia, mild-moderate equine asthma, 13 for the mastocytic mild-moderate equine asthma, and uh, four were mixed uh, mild-moderate equine asthma, and then lastly, 11 for the severe equine asthma. So did you find a significant association between NGAL and neutrophils in the BAL fluid? And also, did you find significant difference in NGAL between the equine asthma groups? Yeah, so we for the for the BAL fluid, we found a, a significant correlation, positive correlation between the NGAL concentration and the BAL neutrophil cell count. Uh, Further, we found that there was uh, an increasing uh, amount of NGAL in from the healthy control group to the mild-moderate equine asthma group and again to the severe equine asthma group, so difference between groups. Uh, when we looked at the different uh, mild-moderate equine asthma subgroups, we were not able to find any uh, significant difference to the neither to the healthy control group and neither between the groups. Okay. And how about the serum NGAL and equine asthma? Did this show similar correlations to your neutrophils? No, we didn't find any uh, correlations or or difference between groups for for serum NGAL and equine asthma or BAL uh, neutrophils. We did find a a correlation between the serum neutrophils and the serum NGAL concentration, um, but not with regard to equine asthma. Uh, And that fits with the literature of equine asthma not being a systemic disease and with previous literature that has not been able to find a biomarker for equine asthma in the peripheral blood of asthmatic horses. Right, okay. And the NGAL ELISAs, have these previously been validated for use in horses? Yes, it has. So research here from the University of Copenhagen back in 2018 had validated this specific ELISA for use in in serum. Yeah. 
Great. So when thinking about using this test for diagnosing um, equine asthma and clinical patients, how stable did you find NGAL was in the BAL fluids? Is it compatible with everyday ambulatory use? We we did a, a small uh, study lo- looking at, at the BAL fluid uh, and stability and repeated thaw and freezing cycles, and we found it to be really stable. And that is also what is found in the in the literature. There has been uh, looking into both the serum, the plasma, the urine, and the peritoneal fluid in, in human literature, and it is also found to be really stable, both with freezing at only at minus 20, but also with repeated thaw and freezing cycles. Okay, so fantastic. If a stalcite test could be developed, this will this protein will be useful for for testing equine asthma, and for inflammation, and possible also for kidney disease. Okay, great. Um, thinking about the different um, MEA subtypes, do you think it's going to be possible to further differentiate between MEA subtypes in future? I do hope so. I think that this Engale ELISA uh, has the potential to uh, distinguish the neutrophilic mild moderate equine asthma subgroup in a in a larger population population maybe, or even if we do freeze the sample, we, this for this study we have used the supernatant and measured the Engale in the supernatant. Um, but we had separated the sample before freezing. So if we did freeze the sample on beforehand and then uh, measured the N-gale in, in, the, in both the cell and the supernatant, that will, by lysing the cell, we will create a higher concentration of N-gale. And maybe with that, if we do this uh, other uh, method, we could be able to distinguish between the MIA subgroups uh, in the future. But I know that several research activities are also ongoing, especially for the mastocytic uh, mild moderate equine asthma subgroup. So I do hope so, and I think that it will be possible in the future. Okay, brilliant. Sandy, what's your overall take-home message from this research? NGAIL is a, is a very promising uh, an interesting biomarker. So I think one should look out for that uh, one. Uh, and especially uh, if it is, uh, if if we will in the future be able to dis- distinguish between the different NGAL sources, so from the epithelial cells and from the neutrophils. Uh, and another interesting things in, in, in the human literature, they have proposed a, a relationship between airway remodeling and NGAL. And if this is also the case in horses, this NGAL can maybe be used as a, as a prognostication of the severe equine asthma horses. So if the NGAL concentrations are able to reflect the amount of airway remodeling and lung fibrosis in the horse, that will also be really interesting. Okay, well, thank you for talking us through this really exciting research. It sounds like it could help the diagnostic um, capabilities of everybody in practice and in hospital settings as well. So really exciting area to look at. 
you're welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks again for listening and please join us in two months for our August episode. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.